of now an independent review panel in the United States has raised concern around the information that was released by AstraZeneca yesterday showing its COVID-19 vaccine was 79% effective in preventing a symptomatic illness. A statement released in the early hours of Tuesday by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases um, also pointed to concern expressed by an independent panel of experts that said that AstraZeneca may have included outdated information from a trial that was conducted in the U.S., uh, Chile, and in Peru. Now, um, the panel also has now urged AstraZeneca to work with the Data and Safety Monitoring Board to review the efficacy data and also to ensure the most accurate, up-to-date efficacy data is made public as quickly as possible. This report by Show and Bryce Pease. AstraZeneca's announcement Monday that results of its largely U.S.-based trial showed its vaccine was 79% effective against COVID-19, a much higher figure than observed in other trials, and that it was 100% effective against severe or critical illness and hospitalization. That immediately raised the prospects that the British drug maker would soon apply for emergency use authorization in the United States. But the latest statement from the National Institutes of Health says the information put forward by AstraZeneca might have provided an incomplete view of the efficacy data, something echoed by the chief medical advisor to the U.S. President, Dr. Anthony Fauci, on ABC News's Good Morning America. The Data and Safety Monitoring Board, when they saw that press release, they got concerned and wrote a rather harsh note to them and with a copy to me saying that in fact they felt that the data that was in the press release were somewhat outdated and might in fact be misleading a bit and wanted them to straighten it out on the basis of that we put out the release that you just showed Mm -hmm. that essentially Mm -hmm. told the company they better get back with the dsmb and make sure the correct data get put into a press release In their own statement, AstraZeneca says it will engage with the Data Safety Monitoring Board, but that the interim results published Monday were based on a data cutoff of February 17th and that their preliminary assessment of the primary analysis was consistent with the interim analysis. This was Dr. Fauci a day earlier speaking about the U.S. trial. So right at the efficacy data, good results. 78.9% vaccine efficacy at preventing symptomatic disease. Importantly, with regard to severe or critical disease requiring hospitalization, there was zero in the vaccine arm and five in the placebo arm. The good news is also that there was comparable efficacy across ethnicity and age, namely a very good efficacy, 79.9% in participants who are 65 years of age or older. But with the latest developments, its path towards FDA emergency use authorization appears less clear. Listen to Andy Slavitt, a White House senior advisor on COVID-19 response. It's one of the reasons why it's so important. People ask, why does the FDA take time to do their work? People also ask, um, why do you make such a point of emphasizing the FDA's independence? And why do you make such an important point about emphasizing the transparency? It's because the science is going to be what the science is. Uh, the, the results are going to be what the results are going to be. And the American public will need to hear that 
directly, and it's important that they have great confidence in what comes out of our, our independent scientific agencies. South Africa concluded the sale of its AstraZeneca stockpile this week after its rollout was paused in early February when a study showed it had reduced efficacy in preventing infection of the COVID-19 variant first discovered in the country known as B1351. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. And uh, that is the latest then uh, from AstraZeneca. And just taking a look at uh, what's happening here at home, um, anxiety is now rising over concern of an impending third wave of COVID-19 infections. And also, um, some would say it's slow, some would say it's a practically non-existent uh, rollout program of uh, South Africa's vaccination. And thus far, less than 200,000 uh, people have been uh, vaccinated and most of them, uh, all of them, uh, perhaps uh, healthcare workers. So to discuss these challenges, we joined on the line now by senior health reporter at Begisisa, Aisha Abdul-Karim. Aisha, thanks for your time. Welcome to Update at Noon. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the show. So let's just start by uh, comparing where we are uh, along with, I'm not even going to go the world over, but just uh, perhaps on the continent. Um, How is the vaccine rollout program progressing? So I think what's really important to note when we're discussing South Africa's vaccine rollout is that we are one of the few countries um, that has a very aggressive variant which emerged towards the end of last year, and that's the variant um, which drove the second wave of infections that we saw over the December holiday period. Um, And while there are other variants emerged in other countries, such as the United Kingdom and more recently in the United States, and Brazil also has um, its own new version of the virus, the variant that we have seen locally, which is the 501Y.B2 variant um, is a bit more different because it has a lot of changes that have significantly adjusted the way in which it spreads in our country. Um, And so even if you look at other countries that have seen these new variants emerging, um, ours has become much more dominant at a faster rate because of how it's changed. So almost all new cases that we're seeing locally are driven by this variant that we have in the country, which puts us in a different position to other countries, especially when it comes to the rollout, because as we've seen from some clinical trials and also from some lab data, the vaccines that were developed over the past year are less effective specifically against the the 501Y V2 variant that we have in South Africa. So we've needed to rethink and change our strategy when it comes to the national vaccine rollout in order to account for this um, reduced efficacy and the change in protection that these vaccines are able to offer us locally. Now, and, 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 you know, I'm glad you went there because um, in reading your paper towards uh, herd immunity and why it's not as simple as vaccinating 67% of the population, um, you do mention uh, the issue of new variants and how fast they actually spread. But when we look at our variant here in South Africa, has that spread to other parts of the continent, one, Aisha, and two, 
if the COVAX facility is um, administering AstraZeneca, how is it working? How effective is it? Or are they distributing other vaccines as well? So I think firstly, just to address the the COVAX mechanism, which is um, a global initiative to move towards vaccine equity, and it's specifically aimed at trying to increase access to COVID vaccines for um, more middle to lower income countries, because something that we've seen is wealthier countries um, like the United States and, and like the United Kingdom were able to basically pour millions um, of dollars or whatever currency was in their country um, into investing in COVID vaccines. And so they secured a lot of COVID doses before we even knew whether the vaccines would work, which is not a position that lower-income countries are um, able to put themselves in. Um, And South Africa, while we are not a a lower-income country, we were in a similar financial position where we weren't able to financially commit to vaccines before we knew that they worked. And so one of the mechanisms that we used is the COVAX mechanism. Um, And at the moment, the COVAX mechanism is distributing two vaccines, the first of which is the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the second of which is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Now, the difficulty with the AstraZeneca vaccine is there is data to show that it works and it does have high enough efficacy to warrant its use. Um, And if you're looking at the benefits of the vaccine outweighing its risks, um, then it is a viable option for other countries. However, it's not a viable option for South Africa. And once again, that is due to the variant and the data that we saw coming out in February um, from the South African trial that was run here. And basically what it showed was that the AstraZeneca vaccine offered 10% protection against the variant. Um, And when you're looking at that in context, it becomes almost meaningless to vaccinate somebody in South Africa with a vaccine that's going to offer them so little protection um, against the virus that we know is dominant in our country. So Aisha, and I think many people are starting to worry. Um, Firstly, if we can address the issue of South Africa's vaccine rollout program, because some are saying that's just a misnomer to begin with, uh, because Even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that is uh, currently being administered to healthcare practitioners, uh, people are saying, some are saying this is a trial. Um, Therefore, we haven't really even started. So let's talk to that. Uh, What is going on? And and you also say in your paper that... um, you know, the the whole notion of herd immunity um, is not as simple as vaccinating 67% of the population, as we've been told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start first by just explaining what's currently happening in the country. So, um, as you said, it, it's not technically being classified as a national vaccine rollout. What is happening is that we have something called the Sisonke Protocol, which is an implementation study. So it's not a clinical trial in the traditional sense of, you know, the vaccine has been tested. It's gone through the normal stages of being tested to ensure that it's safe, to ensure that it works and is offering protection. So that all is fine. What we're doing locally is it's almost like a real-life 
rollout. So we're trying to test how the vaccine works in our country, and we want to see what it looks like when people are receiving it. And we're doing it focused on healthcare workers, which was initially part of phase one of the national rollout plan anyway, was that all the first million, uh, just over a million vaccines would go to healthcare workers. Um, and so in a way, this is sort of following the rollout plan that we had, but it's, it's being termed as an implementation study because it's not just rolling it out. In addition to delivering this vaccine to healthcare workers, the researchers are continuing to collect additional data about the vaccine. So they're monitoring people who get the vaccine. They're making sure that no, you know, additional adverse effects are popping up. And it also serves an interesting purpose in that um, it allows us to also test out our national system in a way. So we are expecting Pfizer vaccines to arrive in the country um, next month, I believe. And so in this way, what we're doing with Johnson & Johnson is it's a small-scale rollout. We're only doing it in batches what Johnson & Johnson can deliver at a time. So at the moment, we've been getting about 3,000 batches every two And we deliver it through the Sasonke trial um, to healthcare workers. And as we're doing all of that, we're collecting information about the system, we're collecting information about the vaccine. And then the idea is that eventually we will move it, once it receives regulatory approval, we will move it to part of our national rollout. And, and, and you know, you also break it down very nicely in terms of how many people actually need to get inoculated uh, to achieve this herd immunity that we've been talking about. And um, if you can maybe just explain that to us um, in uh, relation to the efficacy of the Johnson & Johnson um, vaccine. Yes. So I think, first of all, like to understand herd immunity is essentially what you're looking at is a proportion of the population needs to have protection or immunity in order to stop the virus from spreading within that society. So moment for COVID, the estimate is that 67% is the proportion that needs protection. So we're assuming that if 67% of South Africans has protection against COVID-19, it will protect the remaining 33%. And that immunity can come either through people being previously infected or through vaccination. The issue with the previous infection is, as we've raised, the variant changes things because now people can get reinfected. Um, so, and it's also logistically, it's very challenging to screen people to be like, have you been infected before you get vaccinated? So when you're looking at a vaccination program, you set your threshold at 67%. So you'd be like, I'm going to immunize 67% of the population through vaccines. Now, the issue with that is when it comes to vaccines, every COVID vaccine, um, they all offer varying levels of protection, um, which is something that we've seen. So for instance, the Pfizer vaccine, offers 95% protection, whereas the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine offers 64% protection against the variant. Um, and so when you're talking about immunity and trying to reach herd immunity, 
you have to factor in that efficacy level. So you have to take into account how much protection a vaccine is offering you. So in this case, you're looking at Johnson & Johnson. It's offering 64% protection. And so if you immunized the entire country, which would be 100% of the population, you would still only reach 64% immunity, which would be below the threshold that we're thinking of. With the current plan that we have, which aims to reach two-thirds of the population, with Johnson & Johnson, if that's the only vaccine we're using, you would reach about 43% immunity nationally, which is still below what we're looking at when it comes to trying to offer enough protection to stop the spread of COVID. Um, But where I think there is another factor to consider is all of these calculations particularly the 67% level, is done on the basis that the virus is spreading at its basic number. So we assume that for every one person who gets infected, they infect two to three other people. But, you know, as we've seen in South Africa, we've implemented national lockdowns. We have compulsory mask wearing you know, you're encouraged to wash your hands regularly and sanitize surfaces and um, engage in physical distancing um, from other people. And all of these steps reduce your risk and they help lower um, how fast the virus is spreading. So if we continue doing these behavioral changes and we don't start relaxing in terms of making sure that we're reducing our risk and stopping stopping, um, people from getting sick, we can hopefully lower the number of people that need to get vaccinated. Um, so it all it's not just about vaccination alone. It needs to be done in tandem with the measures that we've already had in place for the past year. So we are out of time, Aisha, but are we looking at a third wave at this stage, especially given that we are now entering the colder months? Um, so I think at the moment it is, Uh, definitely a possibility that there is a third wave, but it's not inevitable. We can all be taking steps to reduce our risk, as I've mentioned, that's masks, physical distancing, washing hands and sanitization. So, you know, we have to do our part to help reduce our risk and make sure that we're not engaging in large, crowded events, going to indoor gatherings, and hopefully in that way we can contain the third wave and make sure that we don't reach... Um, you know, another peak of infections and really is up to individual behavior um, to control what our epidemic looks like. Well, Aisha, thanks so much for your time. Aisha Abdul-Karim is a senior health reporter at Begisisa uh, and uh, talking to us about uh, what is going on at the moment with um, the COVID vaccine and also uh, what we're dealing with, the efficacy rates and herd immunity. And we did uh, try to get comment from the Department of Health on the vaccine rollout plan and uh, we've been unsuccessful to date.